0: It's a crisis. America's large art museums, for too many years now, have generally, not always, but generally, been dedicated to confirming the canon rather than challenging it, rather than interrogating it. Hi, I'm Pierre de Montessiou, and this is Art Goes On,
1: a podcast where people from the art world share the vision of our society and how they keep the art world running. This podcast is interactive, you can ask questions to upcoming guests through our Instagram account, at AskArtGoesOn. Please follow us to be updated. Now, on today's show. Today I'm happy to receive a critic, historian, awarded writer, and multi-praised podcaster, Tyler Green from the Modern Art Notes. Hi, Tyler, and welcome.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. So Tyler, how art is going for you? It's been a wild couple weeks in the States where uh, some of our leading encyclopedic art museums have decided to sell off parts of their collections in um, decisions that have been um, rightly met with a great deal of hostility from critics and audiences and historians. So as, as often happens when institutions are, are letting down the fields they serve. I've just kind of turned to artists and art historians and focused or tried to focus or tried to think about what in what they do, um, I can find joy in. So you're
1: saying that museums in America are not fulfilling their duty. You're referring to the sale of a Jackson Pollock by the Everson Museum. We could also talk about the Philip Guston exhibition or the issues of the Whitney regarding the Sea in Black Association. Is that because of the COVID, the lockdown, or the George Floyd events, or something deeper than that?
0: I think it's different everywhere. I mean, I think that there is, I think it's difficult to identify an overarching failure that holds across Brooklyn and Guggenheim and Baltimore and San Francisco and the Everson at Syracuse and and a a few others. I I, I do think that some museums are taking advantage of the pandemic to do things that let their donors off the hook in terms of donating money. Um, You know, the stat that I think is so indicative of the grotesquerie of today's america um, of the decadence of today's america is that since the beginning of the pandemic the wealth of billionaires alone in the united states has increased by 845 billion dollars and and that's the donor class that's the art museum donor class especially i mean there are lots of hundred millionaires in the museum donor class too but billionaires are you know the top of the top and so billionaires have have seen their net worth increase by $845 billion during the pandemic and still low performing art museum directors and the association that oversees American art museums have allowed art museums to sell art because there was an expectation back at the beginning of the pandemic that institutions would enter financial institutions and their donors would enter financial distress, which has not happened. Um, rich people are doing great in America. Rich people are doing great in America amidst a pandemic that has killed 200,000 people here. And yet these museums, instead of extending their relationships with their donors and, and, and those donors, instead of giving during what is a crisis for everyone but billionaires, um, have, have chosen not to. The, the, the social contract between art museums and the wealthy and art museums and the donor class um, is more frayed at this moment than it is at any time in
1: my career. In France, for example, even if museums have donors and patrons too, they are mainly financed by the state. Both private and public models have some flaws. So what could be the right
0: balance or the alternative model? So the, the revenue models for American and European and for that matter, for, for say European and Asian institutions, art, art museums are really different. But but what makes for a strong revenue model for an American art museum is a diversified revenue model. A museum that is over dependent on admissions revenue like the Guggenheim in New York is going to be in crisis at a time like this. And it has been, you know, that something north of 25 or 30 percent of their revenue has gone out the window, window with the pandemic. So, what you really need is a museum that isn't overly dependent on donors, that isn't overly dependent or really much dependent on admissions, that has a strong endowment. And ideally, um, government support would be a part of that calculation. Art museums should be a way in which governments um, engage with and address issues of the present and American problems of the past. Um, In the university museum sector here, we've seen how universities such as Princeton have activated art collecting in their art museums in their address of their relationship to slavery and racism. And that's one way, you know, that's one path that non-university art museums could pursue in bringing the governmental sector back to museums. Um, There are certainly American art museums that have important and meaningful government funding, Detroit, St. Louis, and Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Museum's utility bill is paid for by the city, for example. So the, <laughs> the heating and lights are paid for by the city. Um, you know, so there are, there are, you know, in San Francisco and Los Angeles, the the, the, the big art museums re- receive as much as two-thirds of their funding from the city or county. So there are, you know, America's a, a, a big place, both geographically and, and culturally, and so there are a range of different models, but but the model that is strongest is, 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 is one that has diversified revenue streams.
1: Museums are always looking to broaden their public. As a critic and thus a mediator, what do you think would be the best way to address a larger public? Is the sudden digital move enough
0: or a good answer? Um, I, I, I think American museums, by and large, overall, do a pretty good job in the, di- in the digital space. Honestly, much, much, a much better job than European museums do. Um, you know, m- most, the vast majority of American museums do a really good job of having their collections online, um, which is both a research resource and a public resource, and, 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 a, bro- more, more, and a broader public resource. Um, whereas that's an area in which European museums have really fallen down. But on the flip side, European museums, maybe less art museums than museums in other sectors in Europe, and certainly libraries, have done a better job of embracing open access policies, which allows people to use and publish images of art and other material in, in their collections with, without charging fees. American museums have, large American museums like the National Gallery and the Met have done a good job of that. The mid-sized American museums, it's been a little, little more uneven. Um, But no, I think by and large, American museums have done, you know, if anything, maybe too much in the digital space. I mean, you know. um, I get way too many press releases of art museums doing Zoom programming like Zoom's great. We all use it. We all need it these days. Right. But. um, I don't know, maybe I just get too many press releases. (laughs) There's a lot of Zoom programming.
1: (laughs) Of course, during the lockdown, we couldn't see art live. Did it trouble you? How did you deal with it? And that also brings me to ask you the reason why almost 10 years ago, you've decided to launch the Modern Art Notes podcast, which is a audio medium to speak about visual arts.
0: Um, yeah, for the first uh, five months of the pandemic, I didn't, you know, I wasn't in a museum. Um, and at the, you know, for those first five months, I was living in Los Angeles, which is just a God awful place to live. It's the most unlivable. It's probably the most unlivable city in America. And, and, and so there really wasn't art to go look at except for maybe like a a sculpture garden at a local university or something. Um, so that was, yeah, I mean, you know, and, 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 and really I wasn't much leaving the house in those first five months anyway. Um, and I've been to, I've been to, you know, as museums in America began reopening maybe about six or eight weeks ago, I mean, there were a couple at the beginning of August and at the end of July, but more have come online in the last six or eight weeks. And they they're they're doing it very responsibly. Um, many of them are are um, unlike I understand in Europe. Many of them are um, are full are 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 accepting as many visitors as they can safely allow. So the demand has been strong, and I and I think you know in my experience in in museums in the last month or two in uh, North Carolina and Virginia, in Arkansas. So I've been doing kind of, you know, just stuff around me, not not significant traveling. Um, I felt super comfortable. So I, you know, that's that's been changing and, and happily. Why did I start doing a podcast? I, you know, I had noticed that, um, I noticed many years ago that as coverage of visual art fell out of American journalism, that the voices of artists the, the 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 welcoming of artists into the public discourse um to address things going on in in the country and the world had really fallen off and that a lot of engagement with artists was really just being done you know in within their their dealerships you know basically pr um and so the the, the the barrier to entry to podcasting, the costs are, are you know, fairly low to get started compared to other media. And I had a pretty good Rolodex. Um, so I figured that I would try to see if people would talk to me. I, I also think there's value in, so historically, you know, in the last 70 years, Q&As with artists are, are published rather than heard or printed rather than heard. And I think you get something different from hearing a conversation, you hear a mischievous sense of humor, um, you hear maybe an artist, especially when their PR operation through their dealership doesn't control it, you hear an artist addressing things that maybe the dealer hadn't wanted addressed. You know, why, why, why do you, um, a white artist, only represent white people in your work? You know, questions such as that. That um, a dealership is almost always going to purge, and so in in, uh, you know, when you're hearing the audio, you can, you have a different understanding of how somebody works through an idea before arriving at an answer that I think is is valuable, and and also is like maybe particularly valuable for students, whether they're art historians or design students or art students, studio students, and I I think kind of the way the show has gone over the last nine years, we start our tenth year in November. I think it's kind of played out that way. And of course, I've had a lot of fun doing it. And, and I've learned a lot from talking to artists and, and art historians on the show.
1: By the time we speak, you've done more than 460 episodes of your broadcast. I'm sure you have several, of course. But could you talk about one of the most memorable moments with a guest?
0: Richard Sarah cried on our programme. You don't get that every day, probably. Um, that was back in the beginning. And I live to tell about it, so that's a plus. Why, what happened? (laughs) Um, His first torqued ellipse, or his first torqued spiral sculpture, I forget which, um, is a sculpture called Joe at the Pulitzer Foundation in St. Louis. And the Pulitzer was a real pioneer. You know, this is 10 years ago when Richard and I taped, or maybe nine years ago now, when when, when Richard was on the show. And the Pulitzer was a real pioneer back in the early 2010s in bringing social justice issues into the day-to-day function of the Kunsthalle. Um, and so the, the Pulitzer had a program at the time where they were working with either the city or the county of St. Louis to help ex-prisoners, ex-offenders to transition back into society. And as part of this program, they encouraged the, the ex-prisoners to interact with, walk through Richard Serra's torqued ellipse or torqued spiral, whichever, called Joe outside the Pulitzer. So a prisoner, after, an ex-prisoner after having done this, wrote a letter to the museum um, in which he explained why, in which he talked about why that had been such an affecting and valuable and, and he hoped life-changing experience for him. And it was a really intense, beautiful, moving, touching letter. And so as I was doing my research on Sarah, I'd been talking with somebody at, at the Pulitzer Who would kind of tip me off about this and said hey you know this would be this would be this would be great you you know maybe this is something you could use so i got i asked emmy pulitzer who's you know the the founder of the museum the the namesake founder of the museum who's known richard for i don't know like 60 years now if she would read the letter and then i played i played her reading the letter for for richard who and that was instant waterworks um he he was he was um that, that got him pretty good and and made, you know, it was a very different Richard Serra, I think, than most people are accustomed to hearing. We also did a show uh, just recently over the summer, um, which in America was characterized by extrajudicial killings, mostly of uh, Black men and women by police. We did a show about, with, with Trevor Schoonmaker, the director of the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, about not just institutional responsibility to address the moment, but particularly the responsibility of institutions led by white people to address America's past and present. And that was, I think that was a pretty good show. I really enjoyed taping that.
1: To rebound on the Richard Serra story and the experience that this prisoner had with his work, do you remember the time when you understood how art could be a strong experience and how it became important for you?
0: Um, I grew up with a mother who was a painter. So when I left home to go to college, um, I just kind of in that dumb, naive way we all have, um, you know, assumed that my experience was like everybody's experience, you know, and then you get to college, you're living on your own for the first time and all of a sudden you realize, oh, the way I had it as as a child isn't how everybody else had it as a child. And so I was there in Columbia, Missouri, you know, 1800 miles from where I grew up and found that I missed art and and, and looking at things and gleaning uh, visual information uh, from things, from art. So I started, um, you know, from so where I went to college, an hour and a half in one direction is the Great St. Louis Art Museum and an hour and a half in the other direction is the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City, which which is also quite significant. And and but particularly going to St. Louis, because I also worked in St. Louis. Um, I worked for a St. Louis company while I was in college. So going to the St. Louis Art Museum was like a really big thing for me. Um, I mean, I would go every chance I I got. I mean, it was an hour and a half away, but you know, so what? I mean, I, I probably went once a month, maybe maybe even more when I was in college. And the work that always got me, and the work I still struggle with is, is Matisse's Bathers with a Turtle from uh, 1908 in, in St. Louis. It's It's probably, the most, well, it's certainly among the most difficult of Matisse's canvases. Um, Every great Matisse scholar for generations has taken a swing at that painting to try to figure out what the hell is going on there. um, It is great and mysterious and wildly different from anything anybody else in the world was making in 1908, early 1908. Um, And so that painting was then upstairs in a very small little space. So with a bench in front of it in St. Louis, when I was in college, it's now downstairs in a much larger space, but it was upstairs. So when you would sit in front of it, you were like, I don't know, six feet from it tops. I mean, you couldn't be, you couldn't sit down and be that far away from it. Uh, And so I would just go do that and try to figure, figure the damn thing out. And I, and when I go back to St. Louis, now I do the same thing. (laughs) I don't know that I've made any progress, but Um, that was, that was, I, you know, last time I was in St. Louis, so one of my, one of my, uh, friends and, and, you know, one of the great Matisse scholars, John Klein lives in St. Louis. And I, um, I'd been in St. Louis for four or five days on my last trip and I'd see John and his his wife, Liz Childs, who's also a distinguished art historian a bunch of times on my trip. And I was like, you know, I figured I was, I wanted to make one last trip into the St. Louis Art Museum before I, I drove or flew or whichever out of town. Um, and so, I popped into the museum to go see that painting again, um, just to kind of say goodbye to that Matisse for that trip, and there was John. John Klein sitting in front of it, and he saw me walk around the corner and just started laughing, and I started laughing, and and we both, I mean, John's lived in St. Louis for like 25, 20, 20, 25 years. I mean, we've both seen that painting a hundred times. We've both spent hundreds of hours in front of that painting, and and so here on this morning, this random morning. We were were both back there to figure it out. And so here I was at 45 years old doing that, doing exactly what I was doing when I was 19. (laughs) And we'll do again when I'm 46 and 47 and
1: 48. You're talking about a painting made at a time when there's been a big switch in art, and in many ways was the birth of modern art. It's difficult to make comparisons, but a lot of people say that great art is made during crisis. Some of them are even referring to the effect the Black Plague had in art. What is your opinion regarding that matter and the current situation?
0: I don't think we know yet. I mean, I, you know, one thing I have heard a lot of artists say, uh, maybe not on the show, but maybe not on, on our podcast, but like, you know, in chit-chatting before and after taping, um, is that, you know, in the first several months of the pandemic, you know, they were having trouble getting materials. Um, or they, they couldn't get to their studios because, you know, the subway was shut down or they didn't feel safe on 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 the subway or or are moving through physical spaces like the building in which their studio was or what have you. Um, and I think that's, you know, that part of it is changing. Uh, you know, we're finding ways to live with the pandemic. I, I guess my sense is increasingly that the pandemic will not lead to a major moment in art. I mean, if we think of the 20th century's watershed years in art, I mean certainly nineteen o seven um Matisse's blue nude Picasso's les demoiselles Brock's large nude, which prompts his break with fauvism and Matisse and essentially ends the Fauve experiment when 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 Brock goes to Picasso in in 07, 08. there's no there was no externally precipitating event there that was. That was that was brock and or that was brock picasso and matisse kind of doing that amongst themselves for reasons that did not have to do with you know a war or a disaster you know 1943 is a big year that's really the year in which american abstract expressionism is born it was during world war ii but only one of the two progenitors of abex had war experience clifford still worked in the war industries um, outside san francisco 1963 is a big year in, in contemporary art around the world, maybe in some ways the beginning. You know That's really kind of before the American disaster in Vietnam began, I mean, more or less. So I don't know that there was an external driver of that. So I don't know that we should expect the pandemic to be an external driver. What I've not seen, and it may be too early to have seen, is a response from white American artists to the, the, the continued... Racism that in many ways defines the United States. Certainly, Black American artists, and to a different extent and with a different focus, Black British and European artists have made lots of work um, addressing American and other colonial histories and imperial histories. But by and large, um, there are always exceptions. But by and large, white American artists have not addressed whiteness or racism or America's history related to those two things within their work and I don't know that we've seen that change in the last 6 months but again I mean you know work has to get made and then be shown to be known and we may just be too early in that but I don't I'm not hearing a lot about it so not unusual within the American white experience you know head in sand is has been the American white approach to racism in the united in, in the united states for about 400 years now, so we'll see. And so in
1: that context, what do you think about the constellation of the Philip Guston exhibition, supposedly because of the representation of the KKK as a critic in some of his paintings?
0: It's a crisis. America's large art museums for too many years now have generally, not always, but generally been dedicated to confirming the canon rather than challenging it, rather than interrogating it. Um, and this Gustin show, I mean, Gustin's not an unknown figure. This is a, a, a canon confirming show. So within the thing that America's large art museums typically do, they they still, one of them, I mean, primarily the National Gallery of Art, although the other three ended up being dragged along for the ride, found that it couldn't, do even a confirmationist show that addressed American racism. That is a lowering of the bar of what is possible. I mean, this is not an an interrogation driven show. It's 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 an exercise in confirmation and the NGA couldn't even do that when one of the issues within the show was America's history of racism and that's crushing. It raises real questions about leadership, capacity, guts, commitment, understanding, the the institution's understanding of their own responsibilities and roles. I lived in Washington for for 20 years. It it is a town that does not value the humanities. It, It probably values the humanities less than any other major world capital, including Moscow. So in a way, seeing a Washington institution crumble when it came time to address American racism is not a surprise. But there had been such high hopes that this new director of the National Gallery of Art, Kaywin Feldman, who succeeded a long-tenured director whose institution, you know, the the National Gallery had always been a sexist, racist, anti-gay, misogynistic institution. And there was hopes that this new director would really change that. And this first big test, she flunked badly and continues to flunk it in public. It's a really terrible moment. I just don't know how the National Gallery fixes it. I mean, everything they do seems to make the problem worse. It's really sad and really troubling and raises a lot of questions about what that place can do.
1: And indeed, the Tate, which was your European partner for this exhibition, was in favor of maintaining it. Do you have a view on the differences or commonalities between American and European museums regarding the treatment of art?
0: i think the big point of commonality and this is really concerning um is is the orientation around confirmation rather than challenge um art museums the world over over prioritize being tourist institutions that don't challenge their audiences that don't encourage their scholars to investigate but but again to confirm um that's that's certainly an american problem but not only an american problem and i'm not sure what the way out of that problem is i mean one of the unusual things about art history as a discipline vis-a-vis other historical disciplines other historical areas is that the history of the field is done in public through exhibition rather than books not to say art historians don't write books i've i write books but for that history to stick and have the greatest influence you know, unlike American history, or European history, where you do that with a book in art, you do that with an exhibition and its related catalog. And as museums, art museums in on both continents are increasingly simply affirming and recommitting themselves to the canon and its whiteness and its maleness, often its maleness. Although I think American museums are doing a better job in recent years of being less male oriented you know, that that raises real questions about how the field can address long-standing inequities if it is only confirming and not interrogating. And, 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 I, and I think that's true in lots of geographies.
1: Talking about confirmation and challenge, it reminds me what a teacher in arts called Eric Booth told about the difference between entertainment and art. He says that entertainment is a confirmation of what we know or what exists, whereas art is more challenging and offers a bigger scope regarding the reality we are offered.
0: That's a good way to put it, right? I mean, that's a really good way to, I mean, artists are trying to do that. And institutions, particularly in the Gustin example, are too often failing at that. And, and it's because you know, that, the, 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 there's that inclination to tourism and entertainment, to, 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 to being easy
1: so what do you think about the fact that sometimes art is displayed as entertainment is it a good way to introduce people to art so that maybe later they will dive into something less approachable
0: research suggests it doesn't work that way right i mean research suggests that that strategy has not succeeded i mean i think what american museums you know um I mean, I, I I think an impressionism exhibition at this point is pretty much just entertainment. It's mass market, middle brow. I, I don't think we're learning that much about Monet from another Monet show. But at the same time, an art museum can defend doing and um, spending a lot of money on a big Monet show because Monet is a big deal. He's a major figure. Nothing wrong with looking at Monets and enjoying them, right? It's just. You know whether that should be the priority or a priority. So it's not quite entertainment, but it's taken two steps toward that. What I what I like art museums to be doing: research-driven, investigative shows all the time. Sure, yeah, you bet. But we, you know, but then there's that pesky old American art museum revenue model, which often relies at some museums, not all, on um, on ticket sales and what that means and the effect that has on 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 programming, on exhibitions and other programming.
1: Before going to the last part of the show, have you thought about doing something special for the 500th episode of your podcast?
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, and I failed to think of anything. <laughs> I, I um, yeah, I do. I mean, but I, I, I don't know what. I, I don't, I mean, I... I don't know. I like just talking. I I like doing what we do, which is talking to my art historian colleagues and talking to curators and talking to artists. And so my guess is that's what we'll do for 500. We'll just do a regular show and I'll say something sappy in which I thank listeners for sticking with us all these years. But I I don't, we did, we did do kind of a different show for maybe our 300th show where um, Wilson Butterworth, who edits the program. And I each picked like three or four clips from the show's first, couple hundred episodes, which was, which was fun to do. Um, but that's harder to do when you have 500. Um, so I don't know. I haven't thought of anything different to do. Um, I, you know, the, the other, the other challenge in planning for something like that is who knows where the hell the pandemic's going to be in uh, 30 weeks or whatever. So I don't, yeah, my guess is we'll do just like a normal show. I'm a little uncomfortable celebrating um, my own work that way. I would rather the focus be on the guest and what someone else has done.
1: So moving on to the last part of the show. I'm going to ask a question from a previous guest, Colonel DeWitt, who suggested me to invite you. And it's about the value of writing. You've already expressed your opinion on that at the beginning of our talk. But still, you have wrote a book a few years ago on Carlton Watkins, and you're about to release another one. So what is their value of writing in art today? I
0: have come to believe that criticism about contemporary art, at least in the United States, is almost dead and um, almost not useful. The number of independent critics in the US, which is to say critics who operate outside the commercial system, is in the very low single digits, and some of them are very good some of them are less, less good. The criticism field has shrunk radically in the last 20, 15 years in the United States. It has become increasingly academic. Um, I think Dave Hickey, um, who is not typically my favorite, um, said that contemporary art is is really become like jazz in, in terms of the critical response to it, which is that it has retreated into the academy and away from actual audiences. I don't see that changing. I don't think there's anything coming that will change it. I think contemporary criticism will continue to shrink and be irrelevant and to be assumed into the commercial market sphere, um, which makes it not critical writing, but merely promotional copy. And I think that's going to continue. It's one reason. I mean, that's the big reason I stopped writing about contemporary art and decided to write about history instead. So all that said, I do think taking contemporary research and contemporary information and using it to help us understand art's past and our nation's past or a nation's past. um, I think there's a lot of value in that. I think that's, I, 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 when I talk to other critics, you know, we always have that conversation. Oh my God, this thing has fallen apart. You know, criticism is dead and dying and uh, it's a corpse in the middle of the road and it's getting run over Um, what to do next. And, and so I just kind of explain how I've done it, how I've, you know, migrated to doing the podcast, which sustains itself outside the commercial gallery system, one of the few forms of art media in the United States that does, of which I'm proud. And then I write about the past and and, and 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 try to bring contemporary ideas and addresses to the past, which I enjoy a lot. And I think there's room for a lot more revisionism in Art history, especially in American art history, and room for a lot more examining of how art has impacted the United States because it has, and a lot. And I would like to be less lonely in my belief and work on that. <laughs> so I'm always, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm generally I'm often encouraging critics to um, get out of the contemporary game, which is kind of sad, but I don't. But it's it's over.
1: And can you disclose any information on your upcoming book?
0: Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking. Um, I I think next year I'll have a, a short book out on Ralph Waldo Emerson's landmark 1836 book Nature. And that book is going to explore how Emerson's study of art informed the most important nonfiction work of America's 19th century. And then how that book, Emerson's Nature, then informed artists up through like Marsden Hartley, and and actually even later than that, up through like Charles Sheeler and Precisionism. So that'll be short and that'll be out in, um, I think that'll be out next summer. And then after that, um, I'm I'm writing a book uh, tentatively titled The Battle of Yosemite, uh, The Civil War, Lincoln and the Invention of National Parks. And it's about how artists Informed, motivated, drove the most influential American idea of the 19th century, which was the invention of the national park. Something that, what, over 180 nations, over 100, what's the number? It's not, you know, triple digits nations copied the American national park idea developed at Yosemite during the Civil War. And so it's, again, foregrounding artists in a story of how something happened. Um, And then it also will be, I think, for the first time, really, uh, we'll talk about how the California genocide um, of Indigenous people, you know, helped enable the invention of the National Park at Yosemite in the 1860s.
1: I'm talking about the influence of art on society, or the fact that it is a mirror of it, more than a mirror, it moves it. What is for you a good example of art reflecting our current
0: society? The work probably I've been thinking about the most in the last couple of weeks is is one of Aaron Douglas's greatest paintings and one of, I, I think, the greatest American artworks of the 20th century, a painting called Harriet Tubman uh, that Douglas made in 1931. It's a commission from an historically black college, uh, women's college in North Carolina called Bennett College. And the painting has been, I think, for a number of years now on long-term loan to the North Carolina Museum of Art outside Raleigh. And it is a history painting, it's a landscape painting, it is an abstraction it's, that relies on representation, it is uh, a, an upturning of 160 years of American art narratives, it is deeply revisionist, it is thrilling, and rewrites the American story on, in, in, in basically a single painting. It's, it's, it's a really great thing. That's probably the artwork I've been thinking about most in the last couple weeks. Tyler,
1: thank you for staying with us. I wish you the best for your upcoming books. And I can't wait for your 500th episode of the Modern Art Notes.
0: (laughs) Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to number 502, because I think we'll make it.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Tyler. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art Goes On. If you like what you heard, feel free to follow and share the show On Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube. Leave a rating or review to help people find the show. Thanks again.